28, verse 17. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I'm Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. My name is Thomas. And I struggle with doubt. I followed Jesus for years. From the very first day he called me. I saw things so amazingly defied explanation. I believed. But then things fell apart. I witnessed the betrayal that led to the cruel march to Calvary and his agonizing crucifixion. 
I survived. But everyone I knew scattered. My world collapsed. Then came news of the empty tomb, the very first Easter. But I resisted. The image of his broken, lifeless body was still burned into my memory. I experienced his death. Then I couldn't believe. Not until I see the scars with my own eyes and touch them with my own hands, I told the others. I wasn't ready to put my trust in something again. But Jesus came to me. He knew my doubts. He even named them. But he wasn't angry. He didn't rebuke me or dismiss me. He looked at me with those familiar eyes and offered me his scarred hands inside. In that moment, I experienced his resurrection and I believed. I know firsthand it's difficult to believe in what you can't see. And yet all around you are people whose lives and stories have scars that bear witness to the meaning of Easter. Yes, these people have been wounded, but they've experienced redemption and healing through Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were meant to rescue the doubters, the debtors, and the broken. People like you and me. He met my doubts with grace and love, and he only asked one thing of me. Believe. The title of this morning's sermon is, Don't Be an Atheist Because of the Resurrection. Now, obviously, I cannot force you away from a life where uh, you're skeptical, a life of doubt when it comes to this Christianity, nor would I really want to force you away from that. Rather, if you're going to reasonably choose to remain skeptical of the God of Christianity, I would encourage you to choose another issue, like the problem of evil. You know, how, how can God be omnibenevolent, all good, omnipotent, all powerful, and yet evil and suffering exists in the world all around us? in the lives of people we know, sympathetic to that problem. Or, or maybe the problem of evolution. How does one reconcile the Bible's account of creation, creation of the world, with the, the quantifiable fossil record that's out there, uh, sympathetic to that question and even that objection? Or, or you might choose this morning to listen Let's listen to some information maybe you've never considered before about the most defensible, most important, most believable Christian miracle that when considering all the facts, it seems most reasonable to believe that a man named Jesus from Nazareth, born of a woman, died, was buried, And then his entire person rose from the dead. Here's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to give you a little road map. You can circumnavigate this message. We're going to talk about a decision-making process. Because all people make a decision about Jesus and the resurrection, even if it's not a decision at all. That's your decision. 
We're going to talk about the objections and attempt to answer some of those objections. And then finally, what becomes possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So first, let's talk about the decision-making process. Uh, Some of you have moved here to the Cayman Islands from somewhere else. You got to discuss the, the various factors with me at one point, a lot of you have, with why you chose to move here. And for some, it was your f- job or your field of expertise. You applied, and the company you applied to accepted you and moved you down here. For, for most, it was a combination of different factors like the quality of living, maybe it was proximity to the country of origin from where you're from, salary, season of life, schools, and that clear, icy blue water. We love in Cayman, right? For some, it was the, the wildlife that seemed so charming during your holiday visiting Cayman, but now it causes you to try to intimidate iguanas right, by running after them with brute force, thinking that will <laughs> scare them, throw rocks at them. I think what is it? It's like a bear, you try to be big. I think a shark, you try to punch in the face. A gorilla, you don't look them in the eye. Iguanas, you just run at them. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the key. <laughs> that's what I've learned. So these are some of the factors. All kinds. You took the positives, you took the negatives, you probably weighed them, and you made the decision against an alternative. It wasn't a 100% decision. What you did is you made what philosophers call a cumulative case argument for moving to Grand Cayman. And I'm encouraging you this morning to merely be consistent in your decision-making regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you might say, well, hey man, but you're talking religion here, preacher. You know, this is a graver matter. This is bigger. Which is why we should at least apply the same criteria. We should at least be as consistent. Because it's a huge deal to put this off, put this question off about the resurrection. You know, but deliberate, so deliberate, and decide on a, you know, which dental plan to accept. I mean, this is placing way too much emphasis on your teeth. All right, and not enough in your eternal destiny in your life today. So through a cumulative case argument, taking all the facts and the evidence together, I'm asking you to weigh the evidence, which makes more sense. Because few of us make decisions with 100% certainty. Even those of you, who here is married? Raise your hand if you're married, okay, and you plunged into marriage. Did you know everything about your spouse when you were married? Did you know every little detail? I guess it's not. Who here was surprised by something they found out after they were married? All right, yes. Like, okay, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, wish, but you still feel like you made the right decision. So I'm asking you, which makes sense in consideration of all the historical evidence that Jesus supernaturally rose from the dead or that his body and his bones rotted like everyone else that went before him and after Either he rose or he decomposed. That's a choice I want you to consider this morning. So to deliberate over a decision like this, especially a grave one, you've got to care about it first. Why is the resurrection so important to Christianity? It's the only religion, only major religion that depends entirely upon a historical, real, tangible person. So Siddhartha, the Buddha, 
Right? He always claimed to be reaching for something beyond himself. It was never about him. Muhammad started Islam, but he claimed to only be the chosen prophet of Allah. In Christianity, everything depends on the person of Jesus. Which means every claim he made about having always existed, the great I am as we say, he has always been. Every claim he made about having the authority to forgive sin, the big no in our heart that separates us from our Creator, every claim he made depends on him not decomposing in a grave. So it's critical. It matters, the resurrection. And I also want you to know why the resurrection should matter to you and I personally. Um, 1985, Joe Simpson and his friend Simon Yates, uh, they decided to climb a 21,000-foot mountain in Peru. Halfway up, Simon fell and smashed the bones in his right leg. His friend Yates tried to lower him down the mountain on a rope, but it became clear that Simon's weight was dragging them both off of the mountain. And soon enough, Yates had to make the agonizing decision to cut the rope, because they were both going to die. To cut the rope, and he watched as Simpson plummeted down into the darkness of a huge crevice and gave him up for death. Yates returned to the camp. However, Simpson actually survived fall. He spent the next three and a half days, torturous days, inching down the mountain with no food. Just a little at a time. Later, he wrote about what helped him endure and keep crawling despite the pain. What he said was this, what was terrible was knowing I was going to die alone. I've never gotten over it. I don't think I ever will. When I had accepted in my heart I was going to die, why did I keep crawling over those rocks, causing myself so much pain? I'm sure it was because if I was going to die, he said, I wanted someone to hold me. And for a rough, tough mountaineer, that was a pathetic thing to be left with, wasn't it? But really it was the only thing for him to be left with. The resurrection, friends, matters because we fear being utterly alone. I'm a big believer that we get nothing but hints in this life. We get hints of being with God. We get hints of heaven. I mentioned marriage earlier. That's one of them. Children. The beauty of a place like Cayman. Little hints of heaven. Victories. We also get hints of separation from God. Eternal separation in this life. Things to make us worried, afraid, angry, sad, melancholy for no reason at all. Seems like one of these things is temporary aloneness. We all know that feeling going through seasons when it feels like even those close to us just care less about us. Pay a little less attention to us. Uh, even when we're physically alone, maybe even in those situations... We had these flashes of hope for, for real, warm human interaction. But Joe Simpson faced the utter aloneness of death right in the face, and it drove him 90 hours, inch by inch, down a mountain. 
I know no one likes to talk about death, but it is a, there is out there that, that stark possibility of utter aloneness that lies beyond death's door. Do we all get saddened by hints of utter aloneness in this life? My question for you is, are you prepared to face utter aloneness in the next? We have a best-selling, most well-attested book in human history claiming that Jesus resurrected from the dead to take away the sting of utter aloneness. The claims is a fact. But when you claim some dude was dead, came undead, neatly folded up his burial clothes, <clears throat> and still in human form, flew through a five to ten thick foot cave of stone, I can see how someone would be skeptical of that. But thankfully, neither God nor his word leaves the resurrection to the realm of mystery. just doesn't. So I'd like to just spend some time answering some of that skepticism. First of all, let's ask the question, how do we even know that Jesus existed and was executed on a cross? I get that question a lot. Hey, Ryan, how do you know Jesus even was alive? We hear this could all be a sham. Christ's existence and death... It's not disputed by the vast majority of, of serious historians and anthropologists. It's just not. I'll give you one example. Tacitus, an early 2nd century historian, referred to Christ, who had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. That's just one. But there's also non-Christian contemporaneous historians like Josephus, Thallus, Julius Africanus, others who affirm that Jesus, in fact, lived and he died on a cross. Not just the Bible that affirms it, it's history and historians. Second question, was the tomb really empty? Was this tomb really empty? And this is pretty crucial as well. The surest comment we have on the empty tomb comes from Matthew, a former tax collector of the Roman government. And before you cry party foul because his account is biased because he loved Jesus, and he followed Jesus, and he cared for Jesus. First, look at it with me, all right? Let's look again at Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. Why they, the disciples, were going along, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, all right, these are the religious leaders of the time, a lot of power involved, a lot of interest involved. They assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble, meaning the soldiers out of trouble. So they took the money, did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day the day that Matthew was writing this account. Now, this little remark here refers, reveals Matthew's concern to refute a widespread Jewish explanation of the resurrection. What was the explanation they gave? Was it that these men wanted to believe so badly they deceived themselves into it? Was it that they tossed back too much wine, they hallucinated, they're, they're crazy, they went to the wrong tomb? No, they said the disciples stole the body. That's what they went with. Hang with me for a minute here. All right. 
disciples stole his body. Now, the Jewish religious propaganda machine was impressive and influential at this time. A lot like you know, the Vatican now has a Twitter account, all right? To, 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 to give a spin on things, all right? This time, I mean, this, there, was, there was a need. They felt, you know, let's, we need to explain this. Interesting. It doesn't deny the empty tomb. Did you catch that? It's a little detail in Matthew's account. Now, Matthew's concerned about the explanation they give, but in that, it assumes, assumes that no one here is denying that the tomb is, in fact, empty, but concerns itself with the best way to spin it. That's crucial. Because while you might cry, party fell, oh man, Matthew's biased, of course he's going to say, like, you know, they, they were spreading this rumor, this and that. What's clear is even the people who had the greatest investment on saying Jesus did not rise from the dead admitted the tomb is empty. We know that. Now let's talk about what we're going to say in response to that. Let's get the word out there. Let's tweet it, how we're going to do this. So, if the tomb was really empty, the very highly motivated Jewish leaders would have surely produced a body. It would have been the easiest thing to do. Dr. John Warwick Montgomery says, it passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and preached it among those who might easily have refuted it by producing a body. Simple. It had been two days. Yet, six major ancient historians of the first century who comment on this Christus, this Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, they claim these things, yet there's no mention of anyone coming up with a body in history or in the Bible. This seems to have been a fact that even people at the time who didn't believe in Jesus acknowledged. So the next question then has to be, how do we account for this? How do we account for the empty tomb? And I got to tell you, the the Jewish leadership explanation at the time was probably the best explanation. I got to give them props for this. The best explanation, apart from the last one I'm going to mention, that Jesus' disciples stole the body. That's the first one we're going to look at. Now, there are a couple problems with this. Number one, they lacked the strength and the stealth to do this. Um, In accordance with Jewish customs, Jesus' body would have been wrapped in a linen cloth with about 100 pounds of aromatic spices mixed together with sticky goo, essentially. And this was applied to the cloths around the body, applied to this linen. So you got basically uh, a mummy, potpourri, and goo all together. After this, the body was placed in a tomb of solid rock with a large stone, which weighed approximately two tons. It would have been a large disc-shaped stone that was rolled by way of levers against the tomb. Multiple people, levers, rolled across the tomb. Now, Matthew tells us, which was certainly true given the importance of this figure, Jesus, to everyone. Remember how mad people were at Jesus at his crucifixion? You had all of the people of the town shouting to crucify. People cared that this man, as we read earlier, wouldn't be known as rising from the dead, that that fraud would be worse than the first. So, a Roman guard, Matthew tells us, is stationed there as well he should have been. And a writer of Roman military history says that fear of punishment produced, quote, flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. 
this guard would have had affixed a Roman seal on this tomb to signify Roman authority. If broken, the most likely punishment for these guards would have been crucifixion upside down. So, why do I tell you all these things? Argument goes like this. Some fishermen, a former tax collector, and a bunch of mama's boys, uh, most of whom had deserted or denied knowing Jesus at this point, not only got past the Roman military guard, but were strong enough to roll away secretly a two-ton stone without any levers. If you ask me, it takes more faith to believe that. And a man rose from the dead. Other problem, the second problem with this, is that the disciples lacked a motive. Um, let me explain something to you about the resurrection. You may have heard, you know, we celebrate Easter every year, and even if you don't know Christ, you hear about Easter, and you know, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm skeptical. I understand at this time, when people taught, used that word resurrection, it was used differently. People didn't understand it like we do today. The Jewish worldview was this, and it's actually pointed out in the Gospels. John chapter 11, if we can point that up here. Jesus said to Martha, uh, whose brother had just died, a man named Lazarus, hey, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, kind of you know in that like, yes, preacher, I know. I've been there. All right, yes, preacher, I know, I know, yes, yes, nod your head. I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Now, this was the common Jewish notion of the resurrection, certainly the one the disciples seemed to hold on to. Also, for Jews, the resurrection always occurred at the end of history. The end of history. Okay, so it would be a resurrection of all righteous religious people. Not one man. Not a singular resurrection while the world remained filled with sin and sickness and sorrow and suffering. That was totally foreign to a Jewish worldview. And yet, that's what Jesus starts to hint at here. In the next verses here in John 11, Jesus says this. But Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he's going to live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is making a claim that he, as a person, is going to be the resurrection, the first in history to rise from the dead. Even while other people don't, he will. Now, maybe the disciples were rebelling against a Jewish worldview. We don't want to be like Jews anymore. We follow Jesus. He's got a little bit different way. We're going to follow the view of the day, the Greco-Roman worldview. Not only with this idea of resurrection, a bodily resurrection foreign to Jewish understanding, but certainly to the known world of these disciples. In the first century Mediterranean world, people had no idea about a bodily resurrection. No conception of it, no rumors about it, nothing. Why? Because in Greco-Roman thinking, the body was bad. The spirit is good. But back then, salvation was liberation from the body. The disciples would have had to make up this as a brand new worldview, that a man physically rose from the dead, and that someday we're all going to physically rise from the dead because of believing him. This is a brand new worldview, and be willing to die for it. They would have to be willing to die for it. And that's problem number three being willing to die for a lie. Ten of the twelve apostles were killed because they believed and spoke boldly about the resurrection. Within 30 years of Jesus' death, those believing in his resurrection were 
persecuted brutally by the emperor Nero, clothed in skins of beasts and thrown to dogs. Others were smeared with tar and used as human torches. Why would people make this up if this was their end? As Blaise Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Jesus' disciples stole the body. There's far more evidence against it. Number two, an argument goes like this. Jesus actually didn't die. That's why the empty tomb. Jesus didn't die. He got up. He walked out. This is called the swoon theory. Jesus never died. He fainted from exhaustion, lack of blood. He was later resuscitated, right, mouth to mouth. Oop, and the disciples thought he rose from the dead. Most skeptics and non-Christians think this objection is pretty far-fetched. The problem with it is that the incredible Hulk had not yet been invented. This conception, even, this idea was not around. It, think about the scenario here. A half-dead man would have to move a two-ton stone. He had to creep about the city unnoticed while bleeding and in dire need of medical attention. Stumbled onto the scene of disciples and give them the impression he was the king of kings and had conquered death. That's one non-Christian scholar put it. This theory could only have given the, uh, only weakened the impression of the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now the theory is that, hey, well, the reason the tomb is empty is the soldiers took the body. The soldiers took the body. Problem, once again, no motive. You've heard me talk about the upside-down punishment of crucifixion, right? There's no motive. The fourth one, people just made this whole thing up. Some sham artists, the writers of the New Testament made the whole thing up. First problem with this, and, and, and I'm also sympathetic, you know, how do we know, how can we believe this, this account about the resurrection, about who Jesus is? People could have made it up. People always have self-interest. They want to they believe in something bigger than themselves, so they'll make it up. The problem is, if you're going to make something up, if you're going to make anything up and write it down, and give it to other people, you want to make it sound convincing. You want to use every possible strategy known in your day to dupe people, help them believe. There's three things you want to avoid as a sham artist. All right? You don't want to leave witnesses out of the main event, which happened at the crucifixion, right? Jesus rose from the dead, and no one was there to watch him walk out. Key characters have no clue what's going on. You don't want to do that as a sham artist either. As I mentioned, no one believed in this bodily resurrection from the dead in the middle of history. That didn't make any sense to anybody. So it was this kind of kooky idea. And third, you don't want to have unreliable witnesses as part of your sham. All right, if you're in charge of writing this sham book, you don't want to have people people can't rely on. Who were the first people on the scene of the resurrection? Women. And in the ancient Near East, women couldn't even legally testify in a court of law. No one would listen to them. So if you're a writer in that time, you wouldn't even think, oh yeah, let's have women be the ones who are going to testify. These rose from the dead. If you're going to make something up, you wouldn't have witnesses who can legally verify the truth. Look, I love history. One of my little, like, side indulgences, aside from sports of various kinds and laughter, is I love listening to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. It's a podcast. Look it up sometime. It's good. But he had this, these great talks. He makes it very interesting, history. He had these great talks on the fall of the Roman Empire. 
Carlin's not a Christian at all or anything like that, but he mentions how back in that day, in ancient history, a lot of um, history was really just propaganda. Just propaganda. You, you want to support people who are paying for you to write. You care about the things you care about. You want to make yourself look good. So when you had an absurd sounding number of witnesses to a big event, or you have details that sound too good to be true, they almost certainly are, he would say. So he, you know, he would talk about pay attention to history that's not flattering and doesn't use all the typical proofs for things. Then you know it's usually real. As I listened to that, I thought, that's the Gospels. That's it. Truth is stranger than fiction. second problem with the idea, okay, that people just made this whole thing up. There's not enough time for myths or legends to develop. There's not enough time between the events of Holy Week and the writing of the Gospels for myths and legends to develop. Uh, Almost everyone agrees that Paul writes of the resurrection in Galatians and Corinthians no longer than 20 years after Easter weekend. And every scholar, secular, ancient historians, Everyone I read say that it takes one to two generations for legends and myths to develop. One man said for the events of Easter to become legend over 20 years would be an unbelievable rate of growth. It's just impossible. Things don't spread that quickly if they're myth. They take time and generations have to die out. Why? Because you can interview people. You can talk to them. What really happened? That makes sense, right? So, empty tomb. What do we got? Jesus, maybe Jesus' disciples stole the body. Jesus wasn't really dead. That's it. The Roman soldiers stole the body. Or finally, these New Testament writers, are, they're sham artists. trying to dupe us. But there's a fifth explanation. And that is the resurrection. Paul says it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So if the early Christians believed anything, they believed that Jesus died and he rose from the dead. That's what unites Christians today. Every Christian believes that. But verse 6 is interesting. He says, they're still alive. All these witnesses, over 500. C.H. Don, New Testament scholar at Cambridge, says it this way, there can hardly be any purpose in mentioning the fact that most of the 500 are still alive unless Paul is saying, in effect, The witnesses are there to be questioned. Paul is saying, ask these people. These people, by the way, who are suffering for their lives. If they believe in the resurrection and that they've seen Jesus. Which of these makes the most sense? If you're really to weigh them, I mean honestly. In in summary, here are the six facts to be explained about the supposed resurrection. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb. The tomb was later found empty. Many people saw Jesus after his crucifixion. 
the resurrection exploded as a widely accepted but radically new worldview just months after it occurred. And 10 of the 12 apostles were killed for believing in it. So I just want to ask you, friends, to fairly weigh the facts and possible explanations and ask yourself, which makes more sense, that Jesus Christ supernaturally rose from the dead or that his body and bones rotted just like anyone else? Either he rose or he decomposed. What becomes possible through the resurrection? This is going to be quick, but some glorious realities. All right, being miraculously okay with death becomes possible. The risen Jesus will be the first face you see when the faces of this world disappear from sight. And the Bible says that as soon as you see him, you will be like him. You will have a perfect, glorified body just like his. A lot of people think that heaven will be a bunch of like kind of weird, ethereal spirits walking around like a happy haunted mansion at Disney World. All right, like, woo, or like something from Ghost Hunters, you know, or something like that. No, perfect bodies living on a perfect earth. It's amazing. You don't lose your personality. It just becomes better, perfect, more glorified. Number two, taking courageous risks in this life become possible. I think of people like my friend Ray Jones who, who step out and help people after a hurricane just to do it. He, he knows, I'm just going to leave what I'm doing in my work. I'm going to go help people. Even though I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. Because there's incredible freedom knowing your body's going to rot. And that won't be the end. You can take these risks to step out in faith. I might even die. But you know what? This life's just the movie trailer. It's just the previews you see at the very beginning when you get your popcorn. That's it. There's a whole movie ahead. It's far better than this. You can overcome previously immovable obstacles. These things become possible. Weaknesses. Things you thought you could never live without. I, I know so many folks here who share with me, I was able to overcome this in my life. A dependence on people, a dependence on a substance, a dependence on approval. A habit in my life I couldn't overcome. It's the resurrection. Jesus says the power of the resurrection through the Holy Spirit lives in us today. Finally, everything Jesus said about free forgiveness becomes possible. Grace. God freely and effectively forgives our sins. You see, friends, forgiveness is extended, you know, sometimes in sappy greeting cards we buy for 3 or $4, or in movies that are, are sentimental and make us even cry. But forgiveness without effective power remains just that, sentimental. A nice thought, something that might get us through the day. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he not only says he forgives us, But that forgiveness empowers us. It changes how we feel about ourselves over a long period of time that we know we're children of God, accepted by Him. It changes how we act towards others when we see them suffering. It changes our hearts towards people who hurt us. Friends, this morning, all this can become possible for you through the resurrection of Jesus. Like that video said, all you have to do is believe. You're surrounded. Look around you. You're surrounded by people who aren't much different from you, that have experienced amazing power, have overcome things they thought they could never overcome in their life.
take risks they never thought they could take. Because they know this man Jesus rose from the dead. And that one day, he's going to be the first face they see. Father, we thank you for this morning. I pray for my, my friends here who doubt, as I know I once did. Father, just a man rising from the dead. But Jesus, I don't think it's an accident that in your word, you gave us so many details about what happened on that third day and afterwards. Because you wanted to make it crystal clear. Look at the truth. Look at the facts. Really consider. So Father, I pray that you would move us from being honest about what makes more sense to real belief. Help us trust Jesus Christ to be the God of our life and to forever forgive the big no in our heart called sin that we can be with him forever. In his name we pray. Amen.